Well, Alani, welcome. My name's Ian Campbell from Palliative Care Australia in Canberra on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples. Welcome to Thursdays at 3, episode 1 in our first season of 2024, our regular series of conversations with people living and working at the end of life. February is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, a chance for us to learn more and talk more about a cancer that impacts around 1,800 women and families each year and of all the cancers, has the poorest survival rate. Our guide in this conversation is Hayley Russell, Senior Research Manager with Ovarian Cancer Australia and Senior Bereavement Support Worker at Eastern Palliative Care in Victoria. Hello, Hayley. Hi, thanks so much for having me, Ian. Really excited for the conversation. Me too. Hayley, ovarian cancer has the poorest survival rate of any female cancer in Australia. Will this be a hopeful conversation we're about to embark on? I, I think so because I think there's so much that we can talk about, Ian, in terms of improving quality of life for women um, across the spectrum of their ovarian cancer diagnosis and treatment. So we we need to be honest and open about the fact that about 49% of women after five years will have not survived their ovarian cancer. Um, but given that, we have this really important opportunity to provide great care across the continuum, especially into palliative care as well. Why the poor survival rate, Hayley? What is it about ovarian cancer? Yeah, so unfortunately um, there are some really subtle symptoms of ovarian cancer, so it can be really hard to pick up if women do have these experiences. So we're talking about things like bloating, um, needing to go um, to the toilet to urinate frequently, um, maybe some stomach pains, these kind of things, which can be attributed to a whole lot of things. So if someone's presenting at the GP with these kind of symptoms, often they're going to rule out a whole lot of other stuff before they even look um, at looking at ovarian cancer. So what we do find then is about 70% of women are diagnosed at an advanced stage. We don't have a screening tool for cancer, unlike some of the other ones that we can think um, of, like breast cancer and bowel cancer. Um, So it's very hard to pick up at that that early stage um, and we might talk a little bit about treatment as well and yeah absolutely really keen to talk about about treatments too mm-hmm. um, are there particular cohorts of women who experience ovarian cancer at, at, at greater rates than others yes so really important to talk about the hereditary element of uh, ovarian cancer so about 20 percent of people with ovarian cancer will have a hereditary element there so when we do i guess we talk about aspects of hope i mean i could say a lot of things about what hope looks like but if you do have a familial um, connection in terms of ovarian cancer we can look at genetic screening and there are um, aspects that you can look at in terms of um, say preventive hysterectomy if you know that ovarian cancer is in your family and you have genetic testing that would obviously reduce or eliminate your risk for ovarian cancer. So that's a really important one that we're trying to particularly talk about this ovarian cancer awareness and awareness month is getting vocal, talking about your family history and potentially looking into genetic testing if you know that that background is there for you. You touched on treatments. Let's talk a bit about the, the treatments. You're diagnosed with ovarian cancer. What happens next? So the treatment for ovarian cancer, um, frontline treatment, um, I guess, unfortunately, in a way, has remained pretty much the same for many decades in Australia. So what we're talking about is either 
um, a surgery to remove as much of the mass as that you possibly can, um, and then chemotherapy or sometimes neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So chemo first to reduce that mass and then surgery. And those those types of chemo have pretty much remained the same for a really long amount of time. Where we have seen some change and where OCA are really um, advocating for new medications is around the maintenance therapy afterwards or the um, treatment after a recurrence, which um, is giving a little bit of change in terms of what we call progression-free survival. So time that women are able to be off treatment and, you know, out there living their lives. And those are um, medications such as PARC inhibitors, which are becoming a bit more accessible on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme now. So clearly there's there's research and innovation happening in this in this space. So what is the, what is the future hold? Where's the current landscape at? What's giving you and Ovarian Cancer Australia hope? So I think important to talk about personalised medicine. So more and more and more cancer streams, we want to look at these individual people and what their own ovarian cancer looks like. Because when we say ovarian cancer, actually that's a whole suite of cancers which look different in their actual um, type, if that makes sense. So it might be a different um, part of the ovary, a different appearance, um, or, um, you know, we also, uh, fallopian tube cancer is also a type of ovarian cancer as well. So getting really specific around the um, personalised medicine and looking at, you know, again, is there genetic elements to this, which mean that you are more likely to have success through these new drugs that are gradually coming onto the market. Ali, you've touched on, I guess, the, the genetic, the hereditary aspect of ovarian cancer a, a few times. I imagine that's a lot for a family to carry. And I guess you as a as a counsellor that, that's helping people with these conversations around genetic testing and the, the pros and cons of knowing this stuff as a, as a young woman goes through life, there's lots to consider here, isn't there, that I imagine is a real challenge for, for women and families to deal with. Absolutely. I mean, look, I have this conversation pretty regularly, unfortunately, with women who will say, um, I have this diagnosis now, now I know there is a genetic element and I feel this sense of guilt that this is something that I potentially have passed on to daughters, nieces. Um, I didn't know this was in my family tree, but this might be an experience that they go through. So um, initially in like the counselling sessions, just giving a space for people to say, oh, this brings another element of real distress and grief and loss that it's not just me it could be other generations and then from there I love the word and in counselling you know okay that is true and then these conversations open up with those daughters saying yeah mum that's true but I have this opportunity to potentially not go through what you've been through and seeing this I will absolutely be going to that that, um, genetic familial cancer clinic and I will be looking at my options for surgery so this is an opportunity, um, you know, potentially to save lives but also to change that experience for generations to come. I imagine that headspace for a young woman, I guess, learning of her hereditary link to ovarian cancer and and that dilemma of do I have the test, do I not have the genetic test, do I find out if I carry the gene, that must be a, a, a funny headspace to, to live in and, and you must have to go through all sorts of questions to to get to the answer that suits you. Absolutely. It's so individual as well. And, I, and 
you know, we even, the, the other thing to take into consideration here is that it's actually not just women as well. Obviously, women's sons need to be aware if that's, a, if that's an issue, if they may go on to have children themselves. And that is a conversation I've had where, where you know, what would this stop me to, from doing or would I be hesitant in terms of having children? It, it does, it, there's so many layers of really almost existential crisis around around this, but there's so many amazing conversations that families can have as well. Yeah, really empowering conversations. Mm-hmm. Hey, just to double-check one thing you said there, so sons can pass on the gene to their daughters? Yes, yes. So um, if they um, are BRCA positive, then they have the possibility of passing that on through to the multiple generations. So it's actually important, no matter um, of your gender, um, your biological gender, to have these conversations in families. If you're looking back and, you know, the, the one we hear about the most often is the BRCA gene. So that increase, can increase BRCA1 and BRCA2 can increase both your risk of breast cancer and ovarian cancer. So if you're looking back at your family history and think, thinking, all right, Arnie Jean, breast cancer, this person ovarian cancer, this person breast cancer, really, you know, again, no matter your gender, thinking about having that conversation and even talking to your GP about your familial risk. Mm-hmm. Hayley, I imagine too one of the other um, challenges or one of the other conversations you must have as a counsellor is that that fear that comes with an ovarian cancer diagnosis, given the low survival rates after after five years, yeah. Tell us about those conversations that you have, I guess, to perhaps get over that initial fear and and point to the quality of life that, that is still there to be lived. Absolutely. And this is, um, yeah, a really great conversation for us to have, Ian, because I think it takes away some of the stigma and the worry about even the idea of palliative care or the ideas around um, worries about recurrence and death and dying. So we know it's an issue for people right from that that starting point of diagnosis. What is this going to look like? A lot of women pretty quickly know about statistics. So, okay, what's it going to look like if I have a recurrence um, and what is that going to look like from there? So we have a lot of conversations around, especially in the initial times, around what is important to you right now. Right now in treatment, right now maybe coming through into the time after treatment when you when you might have a little bit more freedom. What are your goals? What are your values that you that you want to live by? So that because there's this really distressing thing around identity that women feel like my whole identity just became cancer. All I was doing was treatment, talking yeah. about cancer, thinking about cancer. So that wish to get back to other aspects of their life is really strong. And it's an incredibly challenging conversation as well. However, I think there is a freedom in having the conversation openly. Often maybe talking to one of the counsellors here or one of the nurses here is the first time that they've openly had that conversation. I can't talk to my family about that. That's too scary at this time for them. But I need to start talking about openly with someone so I can talk about my fears, talk about what I want and maybe eventually open up that communication with others. Hayley, it sounds like you introduced the idea of palliative care really early on in the piece. Those those values about living well, that's palliative care. But for many with a cancer diagnosis, they perhaps don't experience palliative care until the last months or, or weeks or even days before, before death. You're introducing it much earlier by the sound of things. Yeah, absolutely. I think, again, because it's 
you know, often it's a reality that people want to talk about. They want to, and sometimes there can be a stigma even from raising that within their own health professional team. They don't feel they can say to their oncologist, all right, now I've, I've had my initial treatment, I've had a recurrence, what happens if this treatment doesn't work? Where do we go to from there? Because they have this informational need and this healthcare need of knowing what the future might hold, but it's, it actually feels too scary even to talk about it within their, their cancer team. And look, I could go into issues around um, how willing we are to talk about something that's not a cure within oncology, what that looks like. But I think actually it does often make people feel empowered to have those conversations and to say what this might look like. So, yes, often having it early getting rid of some of those myths around palliative care means you're imminently dying and talking about the support that you can have, scaffolding that you can have from that kind of care which is holistic and which is about quality of life and the last part of your life. Hayley, just to tease out one of the points I think you were, you were raising there and I guess it's around the, the cancer space and the the hope that clinicians try to give their patients and indeed the hope that is there for many cancer diagnoses these days. We've had great leaps and bounds in, in cancer treatments and people live long and happy lives after a, a cancer diagnosis. Yeah. But often there's a barrier there from, from clinicians to talk about palliative care within the mix of a cancer diagnosis because they want to provide that hope to the people sitting a, a, a across from them. Are there some lessons there for clinicians to learn as well? Are there some barriers there that, that we need to be aware of for, from a clinician's point of view? Yes, absolutely. So I think, you know, we did some really interesting research with the University of Sydney around a whole lot of experiences for women. And one of the connections we found is that having informa informational needs that weren't met was leading to emotional distress. So behind the scenes, this emotional distress was there if they weren't able to have that that honest conversation, essentially. So, um, you know, thinking for clinicians about how that might help women in terms of planning the kind of conversations they're having with their family. But also, I think, you know, to, to look at another side of it is just I think it comes down to being curious about what this person sitting in front of you needs know informationally because some people will say I want all the information and others will say I think I need to be where I am right now and then a bit down the track I need a little bit more information on some aspects of that I also you know sadly sometimes hear about these conversations not happening appropriately so conversations around palliative care happening in an open ward without a family member there in the middle of the night okay, you're going to need palliative care, we're referring you to palliative care. So being really sensitive around that conversation as well is so crucial, I think. Tell me, what impact is, does having that curiosity and sharing that information right up front and really well and really openly, what impact does that have on, on grief and bereavement for, for family and friends who, who are left when someone does die? If their palliative care experience has been been positive and that curiosity and that information is there what are the flow-on effects for, for people's grief and bereavement and how they handle that phase of their life yeah and I you know this is something that is really important for me to talk about as well when I'm not here at Ovarian Cancer Australia as you said I work at Eastern Palliative Care and my work is all with families afterwards so we're working in the 13 months doing bereavement counselling doing bereavement support groups and one thing we know about what we call bereavement risk so the risk that they're that bereavement may be more, a bit more complicated for people, is that if there is difficult experiences in the healthcare system, 
So that might be, a, you know, an, an uncomfortable relationship with, a, with an oncologist or a physician somewhere. Um, and also if there is a lack of open conversations, then that can lead to more complicated um, bereavement afterwards and looking back going, I wish I knew this, I wish I knew, I knew, I knew these aspects. So, so what you have the conversation what you have there is, and I'm sure you've spoken before on this podcast, about the ability to have conversations around what do I appreciate about, appreciate about this person? What do I want to tell them? Um, what do we want to do together if we can? That opens that up within a family. And I really believe a healthcare professional can model openness and can model this thing of we're having this conversation from now. And even if you don't want to talk about it today, if you come to me in three months and say I'm ready to have that conversation, you're really modelling this idea of communication often the carer is going to be in the room with you as well so I can't tell you how many times then they get in the car afterwards and says say wow that was big but maybe yeah we now have permission to have that conversation as yeah well. yeah Hayley you've perhaps answered this this question but I can't help but think there's there's more to it but that fear around death and dying is is such an obstacle to these conversations how do you help people get over that fear and have these big conversations. How do you help people as a counsellor to do that? First thing I do is acknowledge that, of course, it's scary. Of course, of course, this is incredibly scary. And it comes, you know, for women with ovarian cancer after a long period of treatment and, um, you know, potential often I talk about trauma, you know, the trauma of having these life and death, death situations. So, you know, the first thing we say is, of course, there is actual anxiety that is behind us and fears and these kind of things. So acknowledging them first of all. But then, you know, often getting into, well, what does the fear look like? Is the fear that um, I'll have pain? Is the fear that I will have, you know, um, experiences with ovarian cancer? Sometimes uh, there can be a lot of ascites, so a lot of bloating and, um, you know, liquid essentially in, in the abdominal area. Does that make heavy fears around shortness of breath? You know, so what can we actually address there? Or is the fear around I won't get the chance to have this conversation or maybe I will, I will be alone? So there's fears that we can talk really practically about in that way. And uh, when you said the word hope a few times in our conversation and what I really believe in is reframing hope okay hope's not going to look like like your first diagnosis we really hoped hope would be you're going to get rid of this ovarian cancer it's never going to come back that doesn't look like that anymore but what does hope look like in terms of where you want to be quality of life those kind of things Hayley I'm keen to talk to you about your Churchill Fellowship but before we move on to that I'm I'm keen to talk to you a bit about Eastern Palliative Care. It just seems like an amazing place to work. And I'm sure I spent some time on the dance floor with some of your colleagues from Eastern Palliative <laughs> National Palliative Care Awards in, in September last year in yeah. Sydney. It's mm. a special place. There are special group of people at, at Eastern Palliative Care. Absolutely they are. So we um, last year, particularly, that was around our volunteer service, so our yes. volunteer service won an award last year. We have, uh, at this stage, I think it's over 250 volunteers who work with Eastern Palliative Care to provide companionship. They, there are hairdressers, there are people who walk dogs. We have an amazing biography program helping people to write their story and that is such a strong part. So obviously we're providing nursing, palliative care physician, massage, OT, the, all of these kind of um, elements. But, you know, for some people 
that volunteer who just comes and sits with them or sits with someone so that their carer can go out is their most important part of their palliative experience. We're the largest palliative community palliative care provider in Victoria, so we we cover a whole lot of areas from right in, you know, the inner city right out into the, the Yarra Valley there, so all sorts of different needs, um, but they are an amazing team. And from my point of view, leading up the bereavement team, um, really comprehensive, comprehensive bereavement services. And because we we create these beautiful relationships with families where they trust EPC, that comes through to bereavement and they're willing to pick up the phone and have a chat to me afterwards because that rapport's really yeah. there. It's, it is an amazing organisation. Here, here. Um, Hayley, your 2023 Churchill Fellowship took you to Canada, the US, Belgium and Switzerland to look at the supports that are in place to look after families and friends where a person chose voluntary assisted dying. What did you take away from from that experience? Yes, yeah, hard to summarise, Ian. There's a 60-page report out there somewhere that people are very very welcome to Google Hayley Russell Churchill Fellowship and they will find it out there. Um, But essentially, I mean, to speak to the need here, we know that voluntary assisted dying is now legal in all states of Australia, has been in Victoria since 2019, and working on the front line as a bereavement worker, immediately began to talk to people and just notice nuances really in bereavement experiences. And I'm thinking, well, we've got no evidence here. You know, I do like to go to the research, the evidence. We have no evidence about these people's experiences. And so looked overseas, applied for the fellowship and was was fortunate enough to get it. And then go and speak to, as you said, US, Canada, Belgium and Switzerland and talk about things like, okay, opportunities for preparedness, for instance, the feeling that people had that they could plan where they were going to be, how it was going to be for them, have those really open conversations. And then also feelings um, of worry and anxiety around the the day itself, what's that going to look like. Um, Sometimes for some carers, and this is where a little bit of the risk came in in terms of bereavement, there could be ambivalence or, um, for instance, people may have a religious or a moral opposition. So if that's happening within families, obviously there's a level of distress. So how do we work with those families, with those carers in that way? And also that stigma exists. I think stigma really does still exist in this area. We conflate ideas around voluntary assisted dying and suicide and there can be um, a judgment of choices there. So in bereavement, that can cause social isolation and people to not feel that they can be open about the way that their loved one has died. Um, and so was really fortunate to then sit in on things like support groups where people had an open space to talk not just about death and dying but about the fact that this is the particular way that my person died and be with other people in, a, in the same situation. Really unfair of me to ask you to try and pull your Churchill. <laughs> but I did it. <laughs> but you did it well, and I'll include a link to your your full report in the in the show notes as well, because it's it's such a live conversation for the palliative care sector and and the relationship with voluntary assisted dying. So I'll I'll include a link to your your Churchill Fellowship report in the in the show notes. Hayley, as we said, February is Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, uh, raising funds for research through Teal teal, teal Tea events, Mm -hmm. uh, the teal ribbon that you're wearing beautifully today, or making a donation on Giving Day on the 28th of February. There are a few things that people can do to support Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. But Ovarian Cancer Australia also calling for better laws and policies and greater access to affordable treatment options. Tell us some more about those 
those roadblocks that ovarian cancer Australia is, is looking to, to help people get over hailing. Sure, yeah. So this is a big part of our advocacy and I touched on it before so that if we if we feel the treatment is changing slightly, we need to make sure that's happening in an equitable way so that all people have access to these things. So pharmaceutical benefit scheme is, is one of the things that we are very present in having a um, having our staff go up and speak to the PBS around why different medications, PARP inhibitors are a really good example of medication which has shown um, efficacy, especially for people with a BRCA gene, um, how, why that should be actually accessible, so not tens of thousands of dollars, but on the PBS yeah. accessible in that way. Um, and then so we think about things like clinical trials, for instance, as well. We're really keen that all people with ovarian cancer have the same access to clinical trials, um, and we see that that can change depending on where you live in Australia as well. So rural and regional, it can be a lot tougher for people to access the information to be able to potentially access a clinical trial. We have a research project in that area as we speak. So um, really creating that equity of access around new treatments as they come up um, and absolutely big advocate for equity that access to palliative care as well and advice around palliative care. That rural city divide is, is such a roadblock in so many different areas, isn't it? It is, but one thing I'll, I'll briefly say on that is very, very proud of our TEAL support program that we have in Ovarian Cancer Australia. So our TEAL support program provides a individual nurse to women with an ovarian cancer diagnosis through their diagnosis, through their treatment. It's all by telehealth, so it doesn't matter where you are in Australia. And we actually find both of the TEAL support nursing program and also our counselling psychosocial services that we do have a significant who are either regional or rural, so they're not necessarily able to get that specialised support at their hospital, but all of our nurses on our team are gynaecological nursing, cancer nursing trained. Um, and so we're, and they have conversations directly with teams about, okay, this is actually our, our suggestion that might help the woman that you're, you're working with. So it does provide a bit more equity of access, we think, in that way. Yeah, great sounding service. You'll find more information on the Ovarian Cancer Australia website, a whole host of ideas there about how you can get involved and support Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month, and I'll include a link in the show notes. Hayley, just finally, what does working with death and dying bring to your life? What do you take away from your work into your personal life? What an amazing question. You know, I think anyone, Ian, who works in this area sometimes gets from the general general public or, you know, if you're out at a party or whatever, oh, my gosh, how depressing. How could you possibly do that? You know, those kind of responses. And Kills always, a dinner party, doesn't it? <laughs> well, you know, maybe. But I always yeah. say, you know, it's that approach that actually is a real disadvantage for us. You know, the fact, the idea that we would find it depressing, you know, I don't find it depressing. I find, I think I'm just working with people at all stages of life and that those people are people with stories. And I always say in my counselling rooms at Eastern Palliative Care, I'm sitting there talking about love, talking about care, talking about an incredible life which existed for a long time up until a cancer diagnosis or an MND diagnosis. And I often joke that, you know, people will think I'm not doing bereavement counselling because we'll be laughing at something, you know, that the person did and it's not just this dark aspect in that way. So it brings to me, you know, a real knowledge about that whole spectrum and I get to witness so much, you know, love within families and I feel very grateful for that, to be honest. 
Hayley, such a treat to spend this time with you and, and share your wisdom and your work with the world. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ian. It was great. Thank you. Hayley Russell there, Senior Research Manager with Ovarian Cancer Australia and Senior Bereavement Support Worker at Eastern Palliative Care in Victoria. As I say, you'll find more info on the Ovarian Cancer Australia website. Thanks so much for tuning in to Thursdays at 3, whether that's via PCA socials or Spotify and engaging in matters of life and death. You'll find advice, tools and support at the Palliative Care Australia website where you can also make a donation to support our work. See you next time.